Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour, a production of the University of Arizona Southwest Center. I'm Jeff Bannister. Today I'm talking with Dr. Luis Coronado, director of SBS Mexico Initiatives in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. Luis has a PhD in Latin American history from the University of Arizona, a master's degree also in history from El Colegio de San Luis, and a bachelor's degree in law from the Autonomous University of San Luis Potosí. For several years now, he's been studying the cultural and intellectual history of 19th and 20th century Mexico, largely through the lens of celebrations and public rituals. He also explores the history of mass media and technology since the time of Mexico's cultural revolution, which began in 1910. Dr. Coronado has published articles, books, and book chapters on Mexican history, law, historiography, and legal philosophy, and his most recent work explores popular culture and cultural heritage shared between Mexico and the United States. Luis Coronado, welcome to Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour. Hi, Jeff. Uh, it's, it's very great to, to be invited, so I really, really appreciate it. Luisa, you are head of uh, SBS's Mexico Initiatives Program in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences at University of Arizona, and you are a cultural historian, and you're a, a, you're a lawyer. You're trained in Mexico as a lawyer and a legal scholar. So you have quite a quite a pedigree, and I want to ask you about all of those things. But before I do that, I'd actually like to to get a sense of your sort of intellectual trajectory and how you ended up in Tucson at the University of Arizona as the head of Mexico Initiatives, and and how uh, you ended up as a you know as a cultural historian as well. Thank you so much, Jeff. Um, I, I certainly don't know how to how to start, but I think yeah, the the first question many people. Uh, uh, gives me when they uh, meet me, it's how you ended up here in Arizona. And I, I would say that um, the first, uh, the interest uh, came from uh, my um, master's in history that I, I, I did in uh, Colegio de San Luis, which is a CONACYT uh, research center on the social sciences in central Mexico, in the city of San Luis Potosí. So in the student colloquiums that they organize every semester, every semester uh, I met Professor Beasley, who is one of the pioneers uh, on on you know the uh, cultural history applied to Mexico and Latin America. So I was really excited to to meet him because I I had read his work first, and then I encountered all you know his approach, which uh, in many ways deferred to what many other historians do with, with history. I found uh, really intriguing, uh, you know, provocative and really interesting his way to approach uh, popular culture. So I, I was really excited to uh, pursuing a doctorate after terminated uh, my master's. And that's how I, I you know, I explored some, some options, either in Europe, both in Europe and here in the U.S. I was interested in in other programs in, in, in the country, you know, you have Tulane, uh, Austin in, in, in Texas, uh, the ones that are the top, within the top 10 of uh, cultural history and Latin American history in the U.S. And, our, and I came to Arizona and he said, you know, well, just just look over our, our program. And, and, and basically that's, that's how I, I got um, uh, basically engaged. Mm-hmm. with the University of Arizona. So how did you 
what what is it that led you into the um, to the study of cultural history? I, I see that you you have training in law, and I know that you actually worked in the legal field. Uh, for some time in, in San Luis Potosí. But is there something about growing up in the city of San Luis Potosí that led you in that direction? Uh, what piqued your curiosity for history as a discipline? Yeah, well, when since I was a child, uh, I, I really got interested in, you know, in, in history and, and society. You know, when I was in third grade, I remember probably that was kind of my first memory encounter myself fascinated reading about uh, Historia Patria, which is, you know, this field that it's taught in Mexico in, in elementary schools and, and finding myself looking at, you know, kind of the tragic and in many ways very incoherent, dramatic history of Mexico. Because, you know, it's, it's it, not, not, now as a historian, it's one of the questions I, I found really interesting, right? Like how a country that basically has never really won a war <laughs> can uh, get something uh, as a lesson, right, for history and, and make make uh, Mexicans so proud of being Mexicans. And, and, and it's, that's intriguing. That's a, a historiographic construction. Uh, but back then, I just was fascinated by heroism and, you know, the way Father Hidalgo you know, just basically was, uh, you know, raising people against the bad government. And that type of stuff was really, really good for me. And I remember my mother telling me that, you know, my, my grandfather, who had already passed by the, back then, uh, had dreamed having uh, a son uh, a law, uh, to study law, right? And he never, uh, he never did that. And so I, I said, you know, I can be a lawyer too. So I, you know, without any anything in my head about what is being a lawyer, but I I got convinced that that was was my my career. So I started, um, you know, when I was in, in in high school, I decided to go into law school, and in Mexico, differently than in the U.S., uh, law is a bachelor degree, so you can actually pursue, you know, to to become to a career as a as an attorney just with the BA. I see. You, you don't need a JD. Uh, it's five five years at and law school, and you know lawyers are kind of um, frustrated historians, many of them, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because they they really love you know this uh, kind of uh, fetishist um, relation with all documents and dusty. Uh, you know, papers in our archives and, 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 but they, they pretty much admire this, you know, bronze history that it's just basically the history, the history of great men. It's, it's legal history. It's basically one of the sources of law, right? Uh, mm -hmm. history and, and customs is one of the, the sources of the law because, uh, society basically learns from, itself supposedly and uh well history serves as a source of legitimation of the law so that's that's why you know I, I i started as a lawyer and my passion my hidden passion was always history since since i was a child uh, a child and then uh at some point uh, i became an attorney i i practiced some fiscal law environmental law administrative law I ended up become a bureaucrat at the service for 
tax uh, revenue in, in Mexico. Uh, in, uh, they, it's called SAT. It's the equivalent of the IRS in the United States, exa- right? Exactly. It's, uh, it's uh, Sistema de Administración Tributaria. So I started working there and I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, it was, it was a, it's, it's a very kind of compelling career into, you know, kind of being updated in what is the new legislation coming up and that type of stuff. So no, it's not very common for a civil attorney to become a fiscal attorney. It's a very complicated branch of the law. But, um, uh, so I practiced about, you know, probably two years. And after that, I saw, you know, I got tired of being of that bureaucratic, you know, kind of dynamic. And so I started to look for options. And I saw this, um, this scholarship for, to, be, to become a full-time stud, a student with uh, Conacyt in Colegio de San Luis. And I said, well, why not? I applied and, you know, I went through the different stages of the evaluation until the interview and everything. I ended up becoming a student at, at Colegio de San Luis. And that was kind of my first encounter with what really historians do, because it, it is very different to, to what in reality, you know, you do to what people think uh, historians do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking about how um, it makes a lot of sense, though, the, the, to move from being an attorney, you know, to having that background and that training uh, into history. I mean, it's, you know, the law is a word of as a world of words and precedent, as you said, and digging around in documents and taking bits of text and marshalling arguments, all of which you definitely would be doing as a historian. But it also seems like a big difference is the the kind of the way that you dig around, um, I feel like in a lot of ways, the historical task is, uh, is, is more inductive than law. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but you know what I mean? You sort of, you dig around in archives and you might have a loose idea of, of a, you know, a given phenomenon that you're trying to explain, but you're really trying to dig through and see what sort of bubbles up through the, through the sources in Mexico is so incredibly rich in, in archival resources. Yeah, I, th- I concur with you. I, I, I think, you know, as the, in, since the beginning, I saw law as, as one of the tools, you know, that you, you analytical tools you can get at your hand if you want to become a, a historian. I am the, the part of the group that believes that historians should be uh, it should have a very holistic knowledge and very deep knowledge, not only of the era they are looking at in the past, but also uh, they need to have a very strong sense of the social dynamics and institutional dynamics they are uh, where they are at in the past when they are you know looking at certain phenomenon or process or character in history or people or a town right or an event they need to they need to know very good about the uh, situations and circumstances that surround that specific thing so law is one of those if you don't understand the legal dynamic in an era you are studying basically you lose many of the deepness of of that era and it can be i mean if you don't 
do history of law, you can use that method to approach others, other uh, other people's life, right? In in terms of understanding how they interact with that institutional uh, reality. So that's that was kind of my first my first approach. But I I, I want to tell that certainly in my masters I wanted to get as far as I could from being a legal historian. In my master's uh, degree thesis, I certainly didn't use many of my tools as a, as a lawyer. I, I, I wanted to, you know, go away <laughs> and explore so many other things. So I started to be interested in intellectual history and obviously cultural history, which is basically trying to understand, you know, how, you know, the meanings of the past are present at everyday lives in people, and it's that's that's a, another entirely different discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that you. So I'm assuming that your your first publication, I believe that's your first publication, La Alameda Potosina ante la llegada del ferrocarril, mm-hmm. uh, and that is uh, uh, coming from your master's thesis. Yes, is that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, well, it was it was my master's uh, thesis, and there in San Luis Potosí, there's an annual, uh, you know, contest for for different fields of humanities and social sciences. So they it, it's a, it's called Premio 20 de Noviembre, and it's it's a, the government of San Luis Potosí organized it uh, to commemorate the revolution, and people basically submit their works. To be evaluated by you know by a, a committee, and at the end you know the winner it has its work uh, they they work uh, published, and and you receive some money and a medal and it's a very interesting ceremony with the governor when they uh, they induct you as as one of the Premio 20 de Noviembre's receivers, mm-hmm. so that that was kind of uh, how my thesis became first uh, a book. Well. Wow. Congratulations! That's quite an honor Thank to have you. that coming right out of graduate school. Yeah, and and yeah, so and and Dr. Professor Beasley actually uh, was really nice in because he knew the research way way before it ended up as a 20 de noviembre winner. So I asked him for a prologue for that that work, and he he did a great prologue. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't expecting you know that he basically did many pages in, in talking about my work. And I was totally flattered of, uh, of you know, the concepts he wrote about, about the work. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about it. So the, so the focus of the master's thesis and then book um, is the arrival of the, uh, the train mm-hmm. in San Luis Potosí, obviously an incredibly transformational piece of technology, tying together the nation state in a lot of ways, um, and perhaps even pulling it apart in others. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the effect of that on uh, on San Luis Potosí and what yes. you saw? Yes, sure. Um, yeah, actually, you know, as as any other student, I was very fascinated when I got first to the archives, and when I when I went uh, to the central library of the University of San Luis Potosí, I was totally fascinated. In you know reading all newspapers back in San Luis Potosí, it was a totally different city that I used to live at. Uh, it was a you know it had a very vibrant cultural life 
believe it or not, very different than in you know in, in 20th century. That's more vibrant. It used to be high ally, for example, which is like this. I'm not sure how how to tell this in, in English. It's like fronton. Uh, it, it used to they used to have the spaces for playing that back then, mm-hmm. and so I started to look many notes about you know the coming arrival of the of the railroad system to San Luis Potosí since eighteen seventy eight. So I was fascinated how society reacted to that, expectant but also criticizing the way the Mexican government had you know, do concession to foreigners and how Porfirio Diaz was trying to bring progress. So I, I saw also uh, this discourse and this narrative about technology embedded in this sort of um, concepts that I was not familiar with. So they talked about progress, about humanity, about the savages and the civilized civilization, in very different uh, terms to what politicians in the present were talking about, big you know public works. So I was fascinated by that. Uh, the first note I saw in the newspaper that struck me a lot it was one one you know in 1888 there was a huge rain floated, floating uh, in San Luis Potosí. So the, this note in the newspaper, El Correo de San Luis, said there was a lot of destruction among the, the, you know, the poor surrounding areas of the city. It was, it, I mean, there were some, uh, some uh, dead people and, you know, and many these bad you know, <laughs> uh, housing constructions for the poor people were destroyed. Mm-hmm. So that's great because, you know, now the government type can take advantage of that to align well the streets on that area. <laughs> so I was shocked <laughs> right. by, by that type of stuff. So I said, how government perceive poor back then? How, uh, you know, people perceive technology back then? So although the historiography of railroad, it's very focused in economic, uh, you know, impacts of the railroad, it's you know, based probably 80% of the historiography of the railroad in Mexico is focused on, you know, how the railroad affected the market. So economic historians look more up on, you know, how the peso rate with the dollar and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of bored about that approach. And I found really fascinating how this railroad arrival was like a catalyzer of seeing other many phenomenons that were surrounding the city. And I, I saw how the city was totally different, not only intellectually, but in the mentality of the people, right? Mm-hmm. So I, that's, that's why I started to do this type of work. So the, the, it seems to me too that geographically, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but San Luis Potosí being in the kind of the center north of Mexico and north mm-hmm. of Mexico City, and then, you know, kind of in the, the on the Meseta Central is a pretty strategic space or place rather for the railroad, right? Because that's that's the that would be the line that the railroad would, railroad might take out of Mexico City coming to the border with the United States. Is that is that correct? Yes, exactly. Well, it, it's an strategic place because uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's within the the center of the country and the. You know, right now, uh, at least seventy percent of the economic uh, activity of Mexico 
is being it's being done within the perimeter of uh, 500 500 uh, kilometers around Mex around San Luis Potosi City. For example, mm-hmm. it's it's totally the same distance between San Luis and Mexico City to Monterrey to uh, Guadalajara. And let me tell you something that may be, uh, be uh, strange to hear, but back then, San Luis Potosí was even more important than Monterrey before the arrival of the railroad. Mm-hmm. And San Luis Potosí was picked of the, you know, for, for doing the inauguration of that uh, railroad track that was from Mexico City to Laredo, that was the first track that basically uh, joined the Mexican capital to the U.S. It's because, as in the U.S., the the railroad is is um, the track is constructed from the extreme points to the to the central point, mm-hmm. and so the 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 place where the two tracks that were being constructed encounter at the end was San Luis Potosí, and that's why the last you know the, the last nail for the last track was nailed in San Luis Potosí, and there was a huge ceremony about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So by virtue of that, then Mexico City and San Luis Potosí and other parts of Mexico get connected basically into a, a quickly emerging global economy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and information yeah. economy, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because is, is the telegraph is following that line also, right? Exactly. So it was telegraph, it was uh, the railroad, and also uh, the, you know, that was the inauguration was 1888. And in 1891, other track, a different track of railroad was built from coming from Aguascalientes and the uh, the Pacific to Aguascalientes and then to San Luis towards uh, Tampico. Mm-hmm. So Tampico is, is kind of the, the gate, you know, the gateway to Europe. So that's that's how San Luis became one of the most progressive cities in terms of technology in the central uh, in the central area of, mm-hmm. of Mexico. And and it was really, really important until the revolution. You know, just to give you an example, at least a couple of the ministers of Porfirio Diaz were from San Luis Potosí during his tenure. You know, right now we are very f- familiarized and we have normalized that presidents, you know, travel a lot and they meet their counterparts in their cities and they have a plane and they have, you know, these ceremonies. But back then it wasn't the case. I mean, Porfirio Diaz just went to San Luis Potosí probably two or three times in 34 years, mm-hmm. right? And the first time that a president of Mexico and a president of, of the U.S. Uh, met in person was under Porfirio Diaz with President William Taft at El Paso. And it took, you know, much effort to bring the railroads to that place and have the presidents to shake hands in the very same border, Mm-hmm. So that changes a lot our perception on how, you know, how how the power and the control of territory is totally different now than it was back then. Yeah, right. I can imagine. I think it kind of goes back to one of the things that you were saying uh, earlier, or alluding to at least, which was, you know, when you write a, a national history, which often is of, of great men, mostly emphasis on on men. You know, the the 
the labor of creating a nation state out of whole cloth and especially a country like uh, Mexico that is so geographically, ethnically diverse um, is, is a very difficult task. Exactly. And, I, and obviously that is a, a key kind of, uh, you know, axis of inquiry in Mexican and Mexicanist uh, historiography. But it seems like the railroad was obviously a, cr a crucial element in all of that. Yes. Yeah. And I, I certainly, you know, I bet that uh, one of the one of the uh, most important investments that Porfirio Diaz did was to consolidate not only his power, but the idea of having, a, as you said, a united nation, right? This sense of unity, no matter the, the diverse ethnicities, even languages, or the uh, regionalisms that were very, very strong in Mexico, that actually put in Mexico, put Mexico into different eras of chaos in, uh, in the 19th century. You know, the railroad, as you said, it was an important element to create in the, even in the symbolic, you know, realm, uh, the idea of that we were a nation together with Aguascalientes. Because before that, for example, you know, traveling to Mexico from Mexico City to San Luis Potosí used to take like a seven days in you know in uh, in a horse catch, right? So it's basically very very different to have just you know to travel overnight in your uh, even in your bed if you were part of the rich people, right? Uh, and just you know basically have a nap and you ended up in San Luis Potosí and then in Monterrey, right? So it's it's it changed totally. Not only the local culture, but the perception of time, the perception of uh, the sense of having access to European goods and services and ideas, uh, publications. We are very used to now to that just with a click, you can see what they are publishing in Japan or in China. Well, wasn't the case back then. You needed to wait for you know newspapers coming from Mexico City. Uh, by horse, you needed to wait for magazines. After the railroad came, that was more immediate, and and you can get even access to fashion items. Right, women were wearing French clothes, and it was a total different approach to life. Mm -hmm. That kind of technology, railroad technology, and and many other technologies, of course, too. But but something as grand in scale, um, as in, as intense as a railroad, is a vector of deterritorialization, you know, a, a vector of a very fast-paced change. Yes. No, 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 totally right. And and so that's that's why I, I got fascinated. First, and and that's that's the kind of main distinction between uh, intellectual history and cultural history. Intellectual history looks look more over ideas and how ideas are first produced by a group of intellectuals or you know and that that are disseminated through different means depending on the era you are looking at but also the perception the reception and the perception and then the interpretation of those ideas so for in my case i was fascinated to see how kind of the core beliefs and the core ideas of august comte uh, from france basically were disseminated into this positivist intellectual trend that just basically, you know, leaked into 
the local discourses about the railroad. So how to link like this abstract idea of progress into a something tangible like the railroad. Mm-hmm. That's intellectual. And the cultural is more how the people react, how people symbolize those things produced and that they are not familiar with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that has to do with religion, that has to do with the specific popular you know, ceremonies around, and you can find all those in how local people interacted with with the railroad without knowing anything about, you know, this technology. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, can you think of a particular illustration of or a, or a story from this research that stands out to you as um, kind of emblematic of this process that you're talking about? Earlier, yeah. you spoke about yeah. uh, the flooding of the outlying. Um, yeah, for example, uh, I remember kind of uh, wondering how common people used to railroad, you know, without knowing. I mean, what was the first impression of one people that not, you know, an illiterate person uh, with the first encounter with these railroads? And I, it, it tried me that we have lost our sense of um, be amazed right? Because certainly we are not, you know, even children, it's not the same to look at, you know, a cell phone and saying, you know, you can, you are talking to your grandma that it's, you know, uh, on the other side of the world. Yeah, well, that's it. And that's, is that easy, right? But watching this enormous machine that was called, you know, the iron horse, right? Kind of buffing and, you know, steaming and, you know, very, very noisy coming to you. It, it should be like a, a huge impression, right? So I remember uh, reading this diary of, uh, of a lady, an upper class lady, whose father owned one of the haciendas that around San Luis Potosí that were given some of their um, lands for the track to be installed, right? So it's it's a it's a cattle. It's a, a minor cattle uh, ranch, and so one of the employees of the of the hacienda, this pastor, like this this guy uh, who was taking care of the of the, uh, I think was sheep. He was adverted, you know, please, you know, near to this day, don't take the cattle near to the track because it's gonna pass. The train is gonna pass, right? So obviously he didn't uh, he didn't uh, obey that. Uh, that order so in when the train passed obviously he he just was totally frightened he jumped uh, you know behind a tree or something he described and then he saw all the cattle or many of the sheep killed by the railroad right passing so he was totally frightened and when when he frightened when and when when the hacienda owner asked him you know what happened? He said, you know, this, this, this tick, right? This, uh, this, uh, basically this stream just passed. We, we were lucky because it passed, you know, coming, uh, like, a uh, you know, de la, in La Punta, right? It was just vertical because he, if, if that thing come horizontally, everyone was going to be killed. Right. So, because, yeah, so obviously the, the Hacienda owner laughed. And I found this story very revealing in how, you know, how people who is illiterate, who is not familiar with this technology, reacted at the first, 
you know, first place by mm -hmm. by watching it, right? Mm -hmm. Which would have been a lot of people across Mexico. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and without even if even if other people could try to explain to them, right? If you consider that, that back then, uh, probably ninety seven percent of Mexicans were illiterate. You can understand the impact of this technology.